test everything and hold fast to what is good. And that requires you to not check your reason at the door. We have a reasonable faith, Christian. We're encouraged to use our minds. We have access to both Holy Spirit and scriptures right here and now, and we are without excuse. Sorry, we've got a bunch of excuses. They're all just terrible. Examine the scriptures. Test everything. All right, we are in Acts 17, um, verses 1 to 15 in the ESV version. Want to please stand? When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived... They went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Uh, Some of you don't know who I am. I'm uh, Dane Foster. I'm the middle school pastor here at Crossroads Church, and... uh, It's always a pleasure to be able to open the scriptures with you this morning, and uh, Andrew asked me a little while ago to uh, to fill in for him on this day, and uh, the the reason he gave was that um, he wanted Crossroads to to be able to hear from another voice, because it had been his voice for a long time, uh, straight through, And, uh, and I was like, but I love your voice. <laughs> you know, I, I want to hear your voice, not mine. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, at the same time, I, I totally appreciate that. Andrew's very thoughtful, uh, very calculated in his approach to the scriptures and teaching us well, and I'm super appreciative of that, and I hope you are as well. Um, we've, been, we've been very blessed with great teaching here at Crossroads uh, for many years, and uh, so I, <clears throat> I'm honored to be able to 
to step into this role and to be able to teach this morning. Um, also a little terrified. Uh, we, Andrew and I were joking around a little bit before service about like whether you get the butterflies or you know what, what's your, your pre-service um, you know, thing that you have to go through to, to be able to get up here and um, I'll, I'll spare you all of the, the gory details of that, but um, it's an intimidating thing. And, uh, and, and specifically because of, of this passage that we read, um, is this an intimidating thing? And uh, so we'll, we'll dive in and we'll see how that plays out. But uh, first into Thessalonica. Read with me again, beginning in verse 1. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there's a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know that you are good, and we, we praise you, we, we love you. Um, Father, we, we know that your scriptures are good. And so, Father, I pray that as, as we come before them this morning, that you would uh, open our hearts to them, that you'd allow these, uh, these teachings to sink deep within us. And Lord, encourage us, challenge us, uh, whatever you need to do us this morning. I I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us um, to receive your word. So we love you, Lord, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Paul's custom was to go uh, to where the God-fearers were. We saw that. Andrew uh, covered that a lot last Last week in Philippi, we saw that they, he didn't get to go to a synagogue there. There wasn't one, so he went to the place of prayer. But just about everywhere else that he is going to travel, as we read through Acts, he's going to the Jewish synagogue. And that is not the easy place to go. That is the intimidating place to go. Um, that is the place where uh, the, the Jewish teachers are going to open up the scriptures. They're going to be teaching uh, about various things. It's not like... Uh, in our, our culture, maybe we, we'd gather together, we'd go to a coffee shop and just, just talk, and no, no big deal. It's just a couple of people talking in a coffee shop. This is, this is the, the place where the religious authorities are going to stand. Um, they're going to be listening and uh, thinking through everything that you're saying, uh, agreeing or disagreeing. And this is uh, how Paul got in so much trouble. This is often how Paul got uh, beat up, run out of town, and... Uh, But this was his custom. He was going to go, not to the easy place, but he was going to go to where God-fearing people were to explain the good news to them. And so what he does here is he he takes the scriptures, goes to the place where the scriptures are are being read, and he explains how they point to Jesus. And the people there would listen to Paul. Some of them are going to get jealous and run him out of town. We'll see that over and over and over again through the book of Acts. It's no different here in Thessalonica. But in this case, Paul was given three Sabbath days to do this, three teaching opportunities uh, to share from the scriptures that the the Christ had to suffer, um, die, and rise again, which is just a a fun little little thought. Um, If you were only given three opportunities 
uh, to share with someone uh, about the Christ, uh, what would we say in that amount of time? And now, granted, Paul probably had more time than just the three weeks here um, to, to be with them, and he certainly had a lot more time to teach them, as we see in his, his letters that he writes to, to them. He got to continue his teaching from a distance. Uh, but it is just a fun thought. If you only had three um, real moments in person to talk to someone, uh, what, would you, what would you fill that time with? But uh, the, the letters to the first and second Thessalonians to, to this church here are pretty deep, powerful letters. If you've never read them, highly encourage you to do that. Uh, Their letters full of love and longing for these Christians. Paul clearly had relationship with them and formed deep bonds with the Christians here. Uh, He encourages them that he'd heard reports about how the Greeks um, had turned away from their idol worship and worshipped God, that they'd received the word of God with much affliction, uh, as this church was heavily persecuted in Thessalonica because they refused to worship the idols, and also because, as we're going to see, um, the Jews did not like this, this message that Paul was proclaiming, so they were being persecuted from both sides. And <clears throat> a lot of deep things in these books, uh, deep things like teachings of the coming of, of the Lord, judgment at Christ's coming, uh, teachings around the Antichrist, uh, concepts concerning the rapture, um, instructions of how to live a life pleasing to God, deep things come from these letters to the Thessalonians. There's no milk needed uh, for these Christians in, in Paul's mind who are living for Jesus in very difficult times. And so this is where the relationship all starts for Paul and the Thessalonians, is here in chapter 17. And the main crux of the passage is this favorite, uh, favorite verse here, favorite couple of verses. We could spend all morning on these verses. Uh, is that Paul, and it's in verses 2 and, and 3, that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. This faith, the faith of Christianity, is a reasonable faith. So many people try to say, you just have to shut your brain off to believe in Christianity. Or I've, I've heard it said, like, you know, when, when Christians are faced with difficult questions or, or hard things, and, and they're like, well, you just, you, just, you just have to have faith, man. Just have faith. And just, you don't need to worry about answering those things. Just have faith. Many apologists, um, who aren't people who apologize, they're people who love to argue, uh, they, will, they will argue till they're blue in the face that that is just nonsense. Nonsense. That we should have good reason for what we believe. Christianity is a faith of reason, a belief you believe for good reason. And Paul, I don't get the impression from Paul that he's that kind of guy that's like, you know, he, he's, he's all for creating mood in the background, like telling the, the worship team, like, yeah, just play that a little, little quietly under me at this time, and then, and then it's, once I get to this passage, really bring that up, bring that in, you know. He's not, he's not trying to create an emotional response in people. Uh, Paul is definitely one who wants to capture the minds of people, and to show them that it is reasonable to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and it's actually unreasonable for the thinking person to reject him as the promised Messiah. Now, what is the Messiah? For many of you, you, you know, uh, maybe this is a new book for you, um, but you, 
You, you need to just simply understand that at the very, very beginning of this book, uh, it's really a library of books, but at the very beginning is a book called Genesis, chapter 3. Uh, Genesis 3 is where God began to speak about someone who had come, a promised person, um, a, a holy person, someone that was going to come and undo the mess that was made for us um, in, in chapter 3 and the mess that we continue to make for ourselves throughout the rest of, of human history. And so over and over and over again, after that chapter, uh, we see G- Jesus really um, displayed throughout the scriptures, this, this promised person who was, who was going to come and he was going to, to do things, he was going to say things. And God, throughout the rest of the law and the prophets, describes for us over and over what this Messiah would look like, what he would do, what he would say, the miracles he'd perform, where he would be born, circumstances around that birth, down to his devotional life, what this Messiah would look like. And so much more that God clues his people into who he would be over centuries. And so Paul goes into the synagogue um, where these scriptures were being kept and taught, and he'd lay out the scriptures before them about the Messiah. So our scripture tells us that he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he was proving this from scripture. So it's like he lays out the case from their Bibles, uh, the passages concerning the Messiah. One side of the table, lays it all out. This is what your scrolls say. This is what it is. And then over here he says, this is what Jesus did. This is Jesus. Now, do you see the correlation? Can you connect the dots? And he focused primarily on proving the necessity of the Christ to suffer and die and to rise from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. And the reason for that is because the main problem that the Jewish people have, the main reason for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, both then and now, stems from this fact, this idea that he suffered and he died. So you you don't have to tell any Jewish person that the Messiah is coming. You don't have to tell them about the Messiah. Uh, They're all taught that from the earliest age. They await this with great expectation, with great eagerness. But what happened was likely what happens to us um, in our own small groups and in our own uh, discipleship groups and in our own devotional life where we have our favorite Bible passages and our favorite Bible promises. And they're usually just the encouraging ones, right? And then and we, we read those, we go back to those over and over and over again, and then we ignore the vast majority of the rest of Scripture, I can just picture this happening, that like the small group of that day, the, the, the typical um, scripture reading in the synagogue, be like, let's talk about how the Messiah will be king, and his kingdom will have no end, and Israel will be restored, and passages about rivers of life, and wealth, and grain, and promises of hope, and encouragement. Yeah, someone open up the scroll, open up Isaiah. Uh, that chapter 9 section again, the, the section with verses 6 and 7, read that one again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Yeah, yeah, government on his shoulder, yeah. 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. No end. We like that. Good. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Good stuff. Read that again. We like that promise. The Messiah, the King. But then they fail to read the other hundreds of verses in Isaiah, the same scroll, that so clearly speak to the Christ, this Messiah figure, as needing to suffer and die. It speaks of the Christ suffering, dying, being rejected and despised, his grave being with a rich man, poured out his soul to death, numbered with transgressors, brought the sin, uh, bore the sins of many, makes intercession for transgressors, stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, by his stripes we are healed, a lamb led to the slaughter, etc., etc. They become familiar with all the passages concerning a conquering king, but the passages of him being a suffering servant, they ignore, or because it's just too difficult to try to mingle those two together, they explain it away. And it's like the guy in that movie, um, Lady in the Water, such a weird movie. Um, who knew someone could get you to wet your pants in fear from sprinklers going off? But whatever, if you've watched it, you know. There's this guy in the movie, he only works out one side of his body. So he's only working out one half of his body. And so one half of his body is ripped. It's like bodybuilder, just huge, just bah, you know. And then the other half of his body is atrophied. It's like really just, it's just like a normal looking guy. And it's the weirdest thing. And, and you look at it and you're like, why would you do that? This is what we can do with the scriptures if we fail to take in the whole counsel of God. And it's weird and it's grotesque, and it's pointless, except as a lesson to not do that. Let's not do that. Well, here Paul connects all the dots for them. And once he's anchored in the word of God, that, that he reasoned, that he used their minds to show them how this makes perfect sense, this is the beautiful result of a reasoned faith of encountering our minds, the mind of God-fears, answering their questions, questioning their own worldview and their understanding of, of the scriptures and saying, this is your Bible, this is what it says, this is what Jesus did, think for yourselves, you're reasonable people, you can figure this out. The beautiful result of doing that in Thessalonica was verse 4, where it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. People get saved. People hear the truth. They see it with their own eyes. They hear it from the scriptures. The scriptures that most of them have probably grown up listening to. Maybe it was brand new for some of them in there. But they hear these things. They, they read the scriptures. They look at the, they, they've encountered the risen Savior, the life of Jesus. And you're unable to make any other logical sense of it. 
except that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. He's the Messiah. But once you've made sense of that, you're still left with the decision, am I going to accept that or reject it? Because it can make all the sense in the world to you, but you still have that that moment where you're like, okay, that that makes a lot of sense, but I, I don't want to believe that. Because if I believe that, that has consequences for my life. That means he is king. Well, we see here that a bunch of people believe. Some of the Jews, a great many of the God-fearing Greeks or the Gentiles, that'd be us, and not a few of the leading women, meaning a lot of the leading influential women. And I'll hold off on my big fat Greek wedding quotes of the woman being the neck, the man being the head. But people are getting saved, right? But not all people. And I love that the scripture is so honest with this. It doesn't read like legend. It, It tells us the good and the bad, the ugly. And sure enough, it continues, and it, it does get ugly, and it shows us our opposition and the, the heart behind opposition to the good news. Verse 5 says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they'd taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, imagine this, and it's not hard to imagine. Um, Week one, right, Paul shows up, he gives his teaching, he explains from the scriptures, he lays out the groundwork of the Christ for, for the, the, the case for Christ, for the Messiah being Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis through the prophets. And week one, people's interest is piqued. Just imagine this. They're hearing this for the first time that the Messiah actually came and, and he fulfilled all of these prophecies that we know are in the scriptures. Well, suddenly people are, you know, they're going to start talking. And then week two, Paul gets up to preach again, and he probably has a bigger crowd. And what that means for all the other guys' crowds is they shrank. And so Paul gets up, and, and he's teaching them these things. And imagine how the students of the religious leaders of that day in Thessalonica, what they were doing with this information. They were hearing these things, seeing it, obviously, coming from the the scriptures. And they're like, what do we do with this? And maybe they go back to those religious leaders and they say, what what do you do with this? This is what he's saying. And that's matching up. Well, the Jewish teachers, they cannot answer Paul reason for reason. And it's just like how we witness today when when people cannot answer reason for reason, um, they typically get mad and jealous and resort to hatred and violence. And so these religious leaders, they get a band of wicked people together. Imagine that. The rabbis, the teachers, the, the good you know, religious folk, um, the, the influential leaders of the, the Jewish synagogue, 
are joining forces with the violent, angry, corrupt men of Thessalonica to form a mob, stir up the city against Paul. Sound familiar? Well, it's been happening. It's been happening in the book of Acts, and we definitely saw it happen in the Gospels. This happened to Jesus, and he promised that it would to his disciples. But the part I'd like to focus a minute on, to dwell on, is this beautiful statement in verses 6 and 7. It's the accusation these men make to the city authorities, where they say, the men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. Please understand, this, this this turns out to not be metaphor, by the way. Right? This literally does turn the world upside down. Um, it was revolutionary. And the only thing that they could use to accuse Paul and his band of was, again, the same thing that they accused Jesus of, that Pontius Pilate was interrogating Jesus for. Are you king of the Jews? The dangerous thing that they're saying here is that there's another king besides Caesar, and that that king is Jesus. And that's the message that turns the world upside down. A true revolution. That the king of the world isn't the king you think it is. The true king is this Jesus whom you crucified. And he rose from the dead. I love to tell my students this on New Year's Eve. Uh, every New Year's Eve, we get together for a little lock-in thing. And, uh, and I tell them, you don't need a resolution. You need a revolution. You need a revolution. Uh, we need to overthrow the king of our life that is typically you, right? The king of our, of our life is typically me, right? Like I am the king of my life. You need to overthrow that king and put the proper king on the throne of our life. That king must be Jesus. And in doing so, it does, in fact, turn your world upside down and the world of those around us. Because we see Jesus as king, we start to live in accordance with his kingdom. The the teachings that he spent so much time talking through was teachings about his kingdom and how it works. And it is often in direct contradiction to the kingdoms and the ways of the world. Jesus is dangerous. His kingdom is a threat to the kingdoms of man because the gospel stands opposed to the wisdom and passions of fallen man. If you will believe this and live as if Jesus is king of your life, that we are simply ambassadors to his good news, to live out his kingdom here on earth, then we will be found banded against by wicked men of the rabble if we make a stand for the gospel. It's guaranteed. Jesus promised it to his disciples in John 15. It's true for his disciples today. I've heard someone say that Christians are agents of inversion. Agents of inversion, of revolution. That God is going to use you and I to turn the world right side up. To what it was meant to be. So cool. And again, we could spend days talking around that, and it's fun to talk about and think through. But the danger doesn't just come from talking about it. It comes from actually living it out. And Paul was able to do both. And we still have a great section to come to, so let's keep reading. Verse 10. 
The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Talk about perseverance, right? Like, just got kicked out of the synagogue. Where do I go? The, the synagogue, the next one, next town over. Um, he doesn't quit. And I love that about Paul. I mean, they traveled the first stretch by night, uh, made a long journey. It would be a 50-mile journey to Berea um, to another Jewish synagogue. Just doesn't give up. He's not going to take it easy. He's going to go where he needs to go. Why? Because he cares. He cares about others, and he loves God more than his own comfort. And that is the perfect ambassador, someone who will represent their king even at the cost of their own comfort. And now we come to a single verse that is a statement, I desperately want the Holy Spirit to be able to say about me and those of my flock. Um, it's such a radical statement from such an incredibly simple, simple thing. Verse 11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. All right, Paul comes to Berea, to who the Holy Spirit determines these Jews living here are more noble than those in Thessalonica. And if you've read the, the books of Thessalonians, you know how much Paul loved those guys. Why are they described as being noble? Well, it's not because they're of royal blood. No, the statements are linked. That verse is linked. Those statements cannot be separated. The Holy Spirit describes those who are noble, the nobility in his kingdom, those of high birth. He describes for us here. And those sentences in the ESV, they're linked by a semicolon. Right? A semicolon is actually important to note here. And for those of us who haven't cared about grammar since fifth grade, right? Like, this is actually an important thing. Um, that semicolon takes the place of a conjunction word like and or for or because. A uh, little grammar refresher lesson here. Okay? The semicolons to be used any time two independent clauses must be linked together. These are not two separate sentences. They could have been, could have plopped a period in there and been done with it. But all of our, our translations from the, the English language um, or from the Greek into our English, English language, the ones that truly care about the accuracy, getting to the accuracy of, of how uh, our, our, the original Greek was translated, more so than the readability, um, they all link these together. The NASB, the RSV, the NIV, they link it by saying, for they. The CSB uses since. The New King James or the King James in that. Why are they so noble? It's because it's in that. It's for. It's since they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And two things we note about what they were doing here, about the nobility of the Bereans. And again, these things must be linked. The first is that they received the word with all eagerness. The word received is this Greek word, dekomai. You will all forget that. Okay. But in the Greek, um, that word is used to, to describe receiving or to taking in one's hand, to take that into yourself. 
It's the same word used in the parable that Jesus gave, the parable of the sower in Luke 8, or the parable of the four soils. You might be familiar with that one. It's this great gardening story, and right now, everybody's getting into gardening. And, like, it's the time. It's the time for it. And, like, my wife and I were like, time to, to plant some stuff, right? Like, and she's had seeds going and, like, growing up, and we're getting ready to move them out in the garden. It's like, it's time. We're on the brink. And you just see it because everything's beautiful. And, like, all of the flowers are coming out. And it's just like, it's a beautiful time to live here. Um, but Jesus uses this gardening story, this, this parable of the sowers, or of the sower, where the sower is taking seed and he's, he's throwing it out onto various types of soil. There's the hard ground, the shallow ground, the thorny ground, and the good ground, or the good soil. And Jesus explains the parable in that the seed sowed was the word of God, the scriptures, the good news of his kingdom. And the different ground represents various conditions of our heart that our hearts may take on. There's the hardened, proud heart that's unwilling to hear anything that God would have to say. There's the shallow hearts that they might receive the word at first glance, but not really take it deep into themselves, not fully understanding the consequences of receiving his kingdom. And when the trials arise, when persecutions happen, they shrivel up, their faith dies. And then there's the thorny ground, where people might receive the good news of God's kingdom, but their lives are so full of other stuff, they're receiving so much other stuff, they call it the cares of the world. There's just weeds and thorns that choke out any life that might have come from their relationship with God. And finally, there's the good soil, the one that's been prepared, the one that is ready to receive and takes God's word in to himself. And that's the heart that bears fruit for the Lord, to komai, to receive, to take hold of. And this is the heart of someone, even the religious leaders here in Berea would take hold of. It's like that imagery of taking what Paul was saying in their hands and examining this thing, gripping hold of it, and allowing these words to take hold in their minds and in their hearts. But that is not the only thing they did. To just take it in, that'd be dangerous. We're not supposed to just receive any old word with eagerness. But it says that they also, the second thing, is that they examined. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They examined. Anacrino. It's to examine, to judge, to sift, to interrogate. Uh, it's the same, same word used in Acts 4, 9 where uh, Peter speaks up at his trial. Um, he was being on trial for, for healing a crippled man. And the religious leaders were asking him by what power he'd done this thing. And he says, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man's been healed? And he goes on to tell them all about Jesus. But it's this idea that you are being examined like in a courtroom. You are taking this, you are dividing it as much as you can, getting to the bottom of it to where you can say this is truth or this is false. The Bereans examined the scriptures, sifted through them, interrogated the things Paul was saying against the truths they could read in the Old Testament law and the prophets to see if these things were so. To make sure these things were true. And they did this on their own, which is an amazing thing. 
They heard Paul preach, and then they met daily to research and determine if what he was saying was true, if it matched up with the word of God. And they worked hard at that. This is something you have to work at. And so this is my question to our generation, to myself, um, to Crossroads Church, is where is the nobility of the Bereans in today's church? Are we noble Christians like these Bereans in God's eyes? If we think that this book, this library of books, is truth, that it's the word of God to man, then I think we'd have a pretty serious relationship with it. Is this really God's word to man? What is truth? Question of Pontius Pilate. How can you know truth? And then I have to start asking myself a whole bunch of questions. Like how many teachers have I listened to uh, this last year? All kinds, by the way. Like just about everybody that talks to me is trying to teach me something. And apparently I'm not a very good student because <laughs> I don't remember a lot of it. Um, but how many books have I read this last year? There are all kinds of books being put out today by any number of teachers and philosophers. And that's what every author is. Is there a philosopher? They're a teacher. How many articles from the news? How many posts on social media? How many random blogs? YouTube videos? We live in the information age. More info than any other year before us. I don't know if we're still doing this, but a few years ago, the statistics were that we were doubling the information we had access to every year on the internet. Doubling it every year. That doesn't even make sense in my brain. And is our world better off for it? Have we finally arrived where we have enough access to information that we fixed all the problems that we said that we would fix? If we just had enough information, if we could just get it in the hands of, of people, and they'd figure this out, we could have peace in this world. Our, our world is in flames. And how many YouTube or TikTok videos have we consumed? How many hours logged in a classroom? How many memos read from our boss or emails? How many conversations with friends and family? How many sermons from the pulpit? We hear things and oftentimes accept it with eagerness or reject it with prejudice, all without doing any of the work let alone the hard work of examining the scriptures to see if these things are so. Christians will post things vehemently on social media because they read it somewhere and it resonated with them. And so they repost it or share it or comment on it or talk to someone about it or form book clubs about it and fan clubs and join organizations over it, all without ever opening up their Bible to see if these things are actually true. And I'm at the, the sad conclusion 
from general observation uh, that we are, are not noble Bereans today in Christendom in the West. And I'm hoping that's not true for everybody in this room. I bet there's some Bereans in here. But I'd say for the vast majority of Christianity that I can see in the Western world does not match up with the example of what was going on here in Acts 17.11. Are we even asking the question, does the Bible say this? Does Jesus say this? The book, this book, is the filter by which we listen. This is the book by which we, we have the lens to see the rest of the world and everything in it should be seen through the scriptures. And the more familiar we are with the scriptures, having a good solid baseline for truth daily, regularly in the scriptures, it's so important because then you can sit and read something and agree with things that you're reading and and resonate with them, not just because they resonate with you, but because they resonate with the truths that you just read, the truths that you know from scripture, that you love. And if something's off from the scriptures, You read that and you flag that thing. You're like, what in the world is that? That doesn't sound right. And then you get about the hard work of looking at Scripture and saying, what does the Bible actually say about this? And dive deeper to ensure that that thing is true or false. We actually did this uh, with the students in high school and middle school just a few uh, midweek Wednesday nights ago. We took a look at a a, a video. It It went viral. It was a TikTok video of a man who calls himself a reverend, because technically he is one, in a church that calls itself Christian. I would say technically they're not. But they are absolutely have absolutely rejected the truths from Scripture to take up the teachings of culture. And all I had to do was play the video for your students. And you'd be proud of some of your students. Because as that video was playing... You audibly heard, this is, by the way, is a guy that has a little, little thing, and he's, he's a reverend, right? And you, you hear, you, that video starts playing, and you audibly hear some of your students go, what? Wait, what? Is that true? <laughs> like, that is exactly the question you need to be asking. And then all I had to do was show them some scriptures. Say, you, read this scripture. You read this scripture. You read this scripture. Let's read these scriptures. And they just read them out loud. And I was like, okay. Did what you just read in here match up with what you just heard that guy say? No. Not even close. Complete contradiction. It wasn't even hard. Middle school students can do that. High school students can do this. You can do this. But only if we have some understanding of Scripture. In a world that is so full of information, some of it, some of it good, most of it bad, we need even more desperately to be filling our minds with the truths from God's Word daily, reading the Scripture. It's a great reason. It's a perfect plug to, to say where we have a Bible, going through the Bible in a year resource we're going through right now. Um, maybe you started that with us. Keep at it. Keep after that. So important for us to be getting the word daily. And if you haven't started that, start it up. And if you started it and you stopped, start it up. 
Let's be reading through the scripture, daily taking in the whole counsel of God, not just parts we like, parts that I, I like. I like to hear that about, about me. No, no, no. I want to hear the parts about me that's like, you need to change. This thing that you, that's, you think that way, that's not the way God thinks. You should change. We need to take in the whole counsel of God. The Bereans were careful to examine the teachings through, or Paul's teachings, through the lens of God's teachings. Not their own cultural upbringing or ideas from their favorite teachers or popular opinion of the day, the scriptures. And the result of doing that doesn't speak any louder than verse 12, which is that many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And I love that. People get saved. And over there in Thessalonica, there was a few of, few of the Jews got saved. Here in Berea, many of them were getting saved. They read the scriptures from themselves. They compared it to reasonable arguments of who Jesus was and what he did, and they made the conclusion that so many other brothers and sisters have made for thousands of years now that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is king. And it would seem as if nothing was going to stop the good news from spreading throughout Berea from those who were actually doing the work of testing these things to find out if they were true. And it took outside forces of those who'd closed off their hearts and minds to the truth to come ruin things. And in verse 13, we see that happen. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. But the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. We have this, this testimony that the gospel is exploding in Berea, so the devil decides to send some of his emissaries to shut that down. And I read this quote again, maybe you've heard it before, uh, by Charles Spurgeon. And he says, I do not think the devil cares how many churches you build if you have only lukewarm pastors and Christians in them. Satan's not threatened by a church of people who don't read their scriptures. He can make them believe anything he wants them to believe, so long as it's anything but what God says we should believe. And then he wins. Satan isn't threatened. And God is not impressed by those who don't fear his word. Isaiah 66, pretty awesome chapter. I'd love to spend some more time studying it. Um, but basically, Isaiah 66, God is speaking. And he opens up describing who he is and how he is not impressed with the house, the temple um, that the people of Israel had built for him. Because he's saying he's God, and he created all the stuff that you use to, cre to create that temple. So, like, don't get too impressed, guys. But then he clues us into who he is impressed with, and it's in verse 2. It says, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's a fairly famous passage. 
But the chapter goes on from there with God describing people doing a whole bunch of religious stuff. He describes them as offering oxen and sheep and grain offerings and frankincense. And what he compares those things to? He compares them to killing a man, breaking a dog's neck, offering pig's blood, and blessing an idol. Why? Because you can do all the churchy stuff. You can go through all the motions of Christianity. You can attend church, listen to the sermons, but still not bow the knee to God. You can hear the words and just disregard them. Not choose the ways of Christ over the ways of man. In verse 3, it says, These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. God tells us over and over and over what he delights in for his people. That we just listen to him. We listen and obey. I mean, how many times do I have to tell my kids that? Should you please just listen and obey? I tell them that almost every time I leave, leave home. I tell them, listen and obey mama. I fear that this is what's happening in Christendom in the West is a decrease in an interest of what God says to be true. It's a decrease in biblical literacy and a general apathy to what God thinks of any certain situation, which is ultimately a deafening of ears to his still small voice. And this is, being, this is an attack on Christendom from all angles. There's the movement in scholarly Christendom who decided that God's word isn't the final authority in the way that we live our lives, but that we should consider new ideas from a new generation or current generation, that those old first century Jews writing to first century Jews and Gentiles can't possibly have meant the same things for us in the 21st century. That and also from the scholastic side coming out of many seminaries is just deconstructionism, which is postmodernism, and it's just a, a desire to have no absolute truth. There cannot be absolute truth. Stating you can divorce the Bible from the author, from the author's original intent, that no passage or text can possibly convey a single reliable consistent and coherent message to everyone who who reads or hears it. That's just a quote of what deconstructionism is. The author who wrote the text is less responsible for the piece's content than the impersonal forces of culture, such as language and the author's unconscious ideology. To believe that in Christendom, you're left with two options. One is that the author of Scripture isn't God. It was just a bunch of men and women over, over the centuries and just happened to fit really well together. It's a fascinating legend. But if that's what it is, then we shouldn't bother. There's a lot easier things you could do with your life. 
The other is that if God is the author who divinely inspired these words to be written, then some sort of impersonal force of language and culture is actually more powerful than that God. And if that's true, he's not that great of a God. And so we also probably shouldn't bother with it. And you wonder why so many proponents of such ideas leave their faith, or they just hold on to their job because it's a job that pays the bills, and they don't believe in in the, the God of Christianity anymore. This is coming out of our seminaries. And then the Bible just becomes whatever you want it to be. And in doing that, you're checking reason at the door, taking up the doctrines of men as the doctrines over the doctrines of God. Then there's the movement in Christianity that is much more obsessed with experience and emotional-driven moments led by the Holy Spirit than they are with checking to see whether these things are biblical, whether they're right, what they're doing in God's eyes. They're often pitting the Holy Spirit against the Holy Scriptures that the same Spirit inspired. Or they'll say that this new revelation given to us today from their prophets and prophetesses has just as much merit and import, or more even, than that of the Scriptures themselves, even when they're found in direct contradiction to them. And to join in that line of thinking, you must check your reason at the door. In fact, that's encouraged. One of the final instructions Paul gives to the Thessalonian church in his letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20, says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. There's nothing new under the sun, guys. Did they have wacko, crazy person prophecies in their day? Yeah, probably they did. But don't despise prophecies. Good things can come from prophecies. But what are we told to do with them? Test them. How much of it? All of it. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. And that requires you to not check your reason at the door. We have a reasonable faith, Christian. We're encouraged to use our minds. We have access to both Holy Spirit and scriptures right here and now. And we are without excuse. Sorry, we've got a bunch of excuses. They're all just terrible. Examine the scriptures. Test everything. Everything I've said. One of the the scary, one of the reasons I'm terrified to stand up here is because you should be checking me. And Andrew. Sorry, Andrew, but not sorry. We need that. Right? We're, We're to be tested against the scriptures. Does what is said in here, what God says, does that match up with what this teacher is saying? A large part of the reason why we we don't do that is because we're lazy. Another large part of why we don't do that is because we fail to believe this book to be God's word. It becomes something lesser in our minds. And we must repent of that. If we believe this book to be the inspired word of God, that it's perfect, and that we should allow it to change the way we see the world, not let the culture around us and the teachings around us influence how we interpret and apply God's word. And if if you're in the camp that this is God's word, I'm going to believe this, I'm going to let this define the rest of everything else I see, then you're actually in the minority. 
And that's the saddest thing I've heard in a long time. But the most foolish thing we could do is take what we hear from the world, the broken wisdom of broken mankind, and say, how can I make that fit with the scriptures? Who is king in that scenario? It's not Jesus. Be noble. Be high-born. Be ones that God would applaud at our dedication to seeking truth and his right-side-up kingdom in this upside-down world, challenging everything we hear from culture against what we can examine from Scripture. So let's pick up our Bibles again this week. Maybe you need to dust it off. Okay, Challenge what you hear and see in media and from those who proclaim to be teachers, wise men and women, leaders, influencers, politicians from any party. It doesn't matter who they are. Nobody gets a pass. Challenge it all against God's word. We have a reasoned faith, Christian. No need to shut your brain off. Are there things that will blow your mind? Absolutely. Are there things you're going to struggle with and be like, this is hard? Yes. God will reward that struggle if we will dive into the Christian into the scriptures, asking hard questions, sifting through the barrage of information from our culture through the sifter of scripture. John 14, 6. Again, incredibly famous verse. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Everyone wants the life Jesus has to offer. But are we prepared to live in the way that he tells us to to live and to accept the truth that he says is actually true? Because only then are we going to find the life that he has to offer. Are we content with the ways we've grown accustomed to and the truths that resonate with us and whatever warped worldview we've shaped for ourselves? Or will we choose his way, his truth? and his life. We need to choose life. And with that thought, I'll, I'll ask the, the worship team to come back up on the stage um, and encourage each of us. Uh, I don't know if you were able to. Um, we're going to take communion this morning. And I think it's so, so perfect. It's so appropriate. Because the very thing that the Thessalonian church uh, was, str- was struggling with, the Jews were struggling with, was the death of Jesus. It's this thing that, that Paul went to great lengths to prove from the scriptures. This had to happen to the Messiah. In order for all of these things to be fulfilled, Jesus had to suffer and die. And that's the thing that the Jews get so hung up on. And yet that is the very thing that we meet together and we celebrate when we come together. And that Jesus says, what I want you to remember in doing this, in, in taking the bread, is, is my body that was broken. And in taking the cup, the, the juice, the blood that was poured out. This is what I want you to do. And do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of what I did for you. And so, um, we're not, we're not going to do it together or anything, just when, when the, the worship team is playing, at any time in there, I, I just encourage you, pray 
talk to the Lord, thank him for what he's done. And at any time that you're ready, go ahead and take that, that communion in, at your own time. And we'll just worship the Lord together in that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you are good. Your ways are good. Your truth, your, your scriptures are perfect and pure. And Lord, we, we recognize that the way that we think, the way that we, we act, oftentimes do not line up with the scriptures. They don't line up with the way that you think. And we repent of that, Lord. We're so sorry for that. Teach us more of who you are. Teach us, um, Father, your ways, your truth. And Father, keep us in, in your scripture, keep us in your word, constantly checking everything that we, we might see and hear it coming from this world, from our culture, against what you say in scripture. Help us to do this, Lord. Give us the strength and the, the, the wisdom we need. Give us your Holy Spirit and his discernment to do this and do it well. And Lord, thank you so much for Jesus, that he died, that he rose again. The thing that is the stumbling block of the Jews, Lord, it's the thing that we celebrate, the thing we hold fast to. We thank you so much for that. We'll never thank you enough. Be pleased with our lives, Lord, with our time of worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. But I, I just, I just want to, as we leave here, I thought it would be appropriate to close with the benedictions that Paul actually gave, the benedictions he gave to the Thessalonians. Uh, it's his final benediction to them. It, and we'll do 1 Thessalonians and 2. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. In 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And may the Lord God give us peace and be with us today. God bless you and uh, have a great day.